Last week, MPs, business leaders, unions and economists met to discuss the future of the jobs market in Australia. High on the priority list were the skill shortages felt across Australian workplaces, increasing productivity and improving the migration system. Today, we're lucky to have Grattan CEO, Danielle Wood, who gave the opening address at the summit to rave reviews, with the Australian Financial Review calling her the summit's early star. We're also joined by Brendan Coates, our Economic Policy Program Director. So, Danny, you gave the keynote address at the Jobs and Skills Summit. Um, what were some of the highlights for you? It was really fascinating for me. I certainly hadn't been to um, any of the sort of previous summits. Uh, it was, as you said, a, a mix of kind of business leaders, union leaders, people from civil society, um, some, some academic researchers and policy experts, about 140 people uh, in the room on, on top of, um, you know, Prime Minister and Treasurer and all the, the state premiers. So it was, it was a pretty incredible collection of people. There, there was a really good energy in the room and I'd say a sense of, of, of goodwill. A couple of highlights for me, I think, you know, a number of commentators have mentioned the sort of the presence of, of women in the summit. Uh, Michelle O'Neill in a panel on the first day drew a comparison with the Hawke 1983 summit where there was there was one woman out of 100 in the room. This was, I think, pretty close to 50-50 and women were certainly very prominent in a number of the, the really important and meaty discussions. The actual highlight, I think, was there was a panel on the second day uh, and the topic was workforce participation, but they had a, a series of, of young people that had for various reasons themselves been at the fringes of the labour market. It was actually kind of hearing their stories and a reminder of how sometimes the system does let people down who are there to make it, who can make a really important contribution. I thought that was really powerful. And I think it was particularly powerful to, to know that, you know, they've got those decision makers uh, and business leaders um, sitting, and, sitting and hearing those contributions. So that, that was a, a, a real highlight for me. So, I mean, Danny, the federal government released their outcomes from the summit late on Friday. The document breaks down recommendations into immediate actions, areas for further work and complementary existing commitments. There's a number of areas where Grattan has been pushing for change. So I want to go through some of them with both you and Brendan now. The first thing that struck me from this document were there, there were big moves on pay equity. And I wanted to know whether these changes that are proposed here will have a significant impact on women's earnings or whether the problem itself is more systemic than can be dealt with uh, by publicly calling out companies without pay equity. Well, the moves themselves, as, as you allude to there, are really about um, greater transparency and, and publication of the, the the sort of pay equity gap within corporations. Uh, look, clearly that's not sort of single-handedly going to close the the gender earnings gap, but I do think it is. Uh, it's a significant shift uh, in in mindset for for many businesses. You know, creates some incentive to try and improve representation, particularly of of women in more senior and better paid roles. So. Um, those measures are modelled on other ones that we've seen overseas and, and we have seen some shifts in response to, to publication of that kind of data. And, you know, I think the corporate leaders at the summit as well, um, you know, really acknowledge that, that once these things are out there in the public domain, uh, you start to build um, KPIs for, for senior leaders around them, that, that's really when you start to get action. 
But ultimately, there, there are a number of different fronts when it comes to, to pay equity. You're talking about things like supporting more women to participate in the workforce where they want to after they've had children. Uh, you're looking at things like addressing structural problems of, for low pay in, in highly feminised sectors, particularly the care sectors, breaking down gender segregation uh, across occupations, which is still deeply entrenched in Australia, uh, and better sharing of unpaid care between men and women. Um, so all of those really need to be on the table if, if we're going to, to close that gender earning gap over time. So one of the areas for further work and a cornerstone of your address is developing a long-term vision for early childhood education and care reform to better support parents' workforce participation as a national priority and the development here of an early years strategy. What should governments be addressing in this vision? There are a number of people that were probably a little bit disappointed in the summit that the government didn't bring forward changes to make early learning and care more affordable. Um, the government has announced a policy which is due to come into effect in July next year, which is about reducing the cost barriers to, to new parents accessing care. Uh, there was a push to move that to, to January. It didn't happen. And, you know, I understand the government's reasoning, particularly around trying to get the workforce in place to actually deliver that. So I think the idea of this early year strategy is to, to come at this in a bigger picture and more strategic way. There are a number of different threads that, that feed in. Um, so the question of affordability is, is crucial. Um, we need to make sure, particularly as we put more money into the system, that the parents are actually benefiting from those extra supports uh, and that we have a path to transition to, to low-cost universal care, which is the other component of the government's announcement. Uh, accessibility is, is really important as well, making sure that we have enough high-quality care in the places where, it, where it's needed. Um, so we're, we're hearing a lot more about childcare deserts where, where families are not able to access the care they need. Uh, there was a really important contribution, I think, from David Littleproud, the, the Nationals leader at the Senate, when he talked about, you know, just how often um, young families in regional areas are struggling to get the care places they need. Uh, and the final component of it is, is workforce strategy. So the industry regulator thinks we're going to need an extra 39,000 early childhood educators by next year. As you make that system more accessible by reducing out-of-pocket costs, demand is only going to increase. Uh, and we are at the moment losing educators at the, the rate of knots. So uh, as I mentioned in my speech, you know, of the people that qualify for an early childhood um, certificate qualification, half of them are gone with, within a decade from, from the sector. For construction qualifications, uh, you have very, very few people dropping out of the industry. So we have a big problem with retention. We have a problem with attraction. We know why people are leaving because there's plenty of surveys actually asking them. It's workload and pay. So really central to that strategy, I think, is how do you make these jobs good jobs uh, and jobs where people are recognised for the, the value that they're contributing in um, helping educate and care for the next generation? Yeah, your comparison that um, early childhood workers could make more money working at Bunnings um, really struck home for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, <laughs> I'm sure many of them look at that and they think, you know, I'm doing this really important but ultimately, you know, quite complex, quite emotionally draining work. Uh, maybe I am better off taking the pay rise and um, doing something that's uh, a, a little easier day to day. 
So the government has committed to providing stronger access to flexible working arrangements and unpaid parental leave so families can share work and caring responsibilities. This recommendation is something we've discussed in our report Dad Days and previous research. What does this research show about the importance of shared care and why are these changes important? The announcement that was made was really it's a change to the Fair Work Act um, to improve access to, to flexible working arrangements and, and, and unpaid parental leave. So the, the idea is that uh, it will allow families to, to make decisions that allow them to, to better manage work and family. Um, so those opportunities for flexibility are actually really important for men in particular. At the moment, they're more likely to have their requests for, for flexible work declined. And, and what our research shows is where dads are able to be more involved in, in care of their children in those early years, uh, that sets them up to be more hands-on throughout their children's life. So that's great in terms of um, opportunities for, for sharing participation of paid work amongst couples. If dads are more involved in, in care, that does allow women more opportunity to participate in the paid workforce. Uh, so benefits for gender equality, but, but all sorts of other benefits too. So we see um, studies on um, relationship satisfaction being higher where, where dads are more involved in care. Um, dad's mental health and well-being is boosted. Um, children's brain development, um, which is, you know, not so much a gender thing, but it's about having two adults with different styles really hands-on in, in raising children. So there's a lot of positive social benefits from this as well. If we are really serious about seeing these benefits, we need to start talking about how we can extend government paid parental leave as well. At the moment, it's 20 weeks. Uh, really, it needs to be probably a minimum of, of 26 uh, with a six-week use-it-or-lose-it component for dads and partners. Uh, when we look around the world, um, you know, that's what you need really to, to shift the dial and, and to get um, men more actively involved in, in taking it up. Uh, and that's really the only way I think we're going to... To, to start breaking down what is a very gendered division of labour in Australia compared to other countries. Other countries are well down this road. Uh, we need to go there too or we're going to be left behind. So, Brendan, I'd like to turn to you now to talk about um, some of the aspects of migration and skill shortages. Uh, can you take us through some of those recommendations and actions that came out in the report? Thanks, Kat. So I'd probably distinguish between some of the things the government's going to do straight away and then some of the things that the government's committed to looking to going forward. So like the big one that was the centrepiece, I suspect, of the outcomes of the summit along with, uh, or certainly one of the big ones, was on increasing the size of the permanent uh, migration intake this year from 160 to 195,000 people. It's something we spoke about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about the impact that'll have. You know, lots of people talk about this as if it's going to do a lot to sort of deal with the fact we have a tight labour market. We tend to think more that it's really just means that you have a, a larger population in the long term um, and to the extent that those migrants are coming from offshore in the first instance, what you're really doing is you're just adding to both the demand and the supply of labour. So migrants fill those extra jobs, but they then also create the extra demand by their spending that adds to the number of jobs out there in the economy. Uh, so instead, the big benefit of, of increasing that intake in the in the sort of in this for the government is essentially the long-term fiscal dividends. So, you know, if you increase the size of the intake, if this remained in place long-term, this 195,000, then it would have a potentially very large boost to Commonwealth and state government budgets because migrants arrive in their 20s and 30s. They then have the ability to, you know, they pay a lot of tax, they don't draw much on services. We can estimate essentially that that boost to the fiscal dividend could be up to $33 billion over a decade. 
Now, Clear on Eel has also been really clear that they're not necessarily going to increase it long term. That's the main benefit. Um, instead, they've been pretty open that they're going to look at it as part of a review that they've also flagged um, as part of this process, which will hopefully kick off in the next few weeks. But before we get to that, the other changes that have been made is they've put $38 million into trying to um, speed up the processing backlog of visas in Australia. There's about 900,000 outstanding visas today um, that haven't been processed. Now, that doesn't mean 900,000 more people would come to Australia if those visas are processed. A lot of those visas are people who are on one visa, they want to shift to another. They're a working holiday maker, they want to become a student. They're a student, they've applied for permanent residency. Um, but there are big issues from what we hear about how the Department of Home Affairs is set up to actually process those visas. And that's probably going to need more investment in the long run. The other short-term ones that the government's committed to is they've uh, committed to extend the period that international students can stay in Australia after they graduate by another two years although they look like they're going to apply it just to particular sets of, of courses, um, people who have done engineering or, or nursing, things that they deem to be in shortage. Um, now, the big challenge there is that those postgraduate study visas, it's something we haven't written a lot on before at Grattan, but the outcomes aren't great. You know, one quarter of those that are on these visas today are unemployed or not even looking for work. A further 20% are working in places like retail, wholesale services and hospitality. So they're not necessarily working in skilled jobs when they do stay in Australia after they graduate. Um, and that seems to be because part, look, it might be partly discrimination, but partly it seems the temporary nature of that visa makes it hard for them to secure long-term work. And then finally, of the other things the government has committed to, they've extended for international students the ability to stay in Australia to while you're in Australia. Um, there's currently a, a relaxation of the former cap on the number of hours you could work each fortnight. It used to be 40 hours a fortnight. Now it's been opened up um, and they're going to extend that through for another year until uh, the end of June 2023. And they've been very clear that they're going to stop it, which is something that, you know, is, is probably a good idea because while we're in a world of, you know, more work rights for students maybe relaxes the risk of exploitation, uh, because we saw in cases like the 7-Eleven case a few years ago uh, where lots of people were working at 7-Eleven being underpaid uh, with the threat of being sort of outed for overworking more than their work hours um, hanging over them. The risk is that if you uncap that, that number of work hours, which is something no one else has done in the world, um, we are undertaking a world-first experiment here. The risk is that you turn student visas into a de facto low-wage work visa in Australia. So they're the, the big four things, Kat, that they've done in the short term. And then there's other things they're exploring going forward. Yeah, and that's a nice segue into what I was going to ask you next, which is about um, how the government will be reviewing several existing migration policies, including a few which you've suggested previously, like the effectiveness of skilled migration occupation lists and raising the temporary skilled migration income thresholds. Do you think that these reviews are a good thing that they're doing or do you think this is potentially kicking the can down the road that maybe action should have been taken at the summit? No, I think it's easy to sort of get caught up in the, the, the pageantry of the summit and think that that's going to solve like so many issues at once. Migration hasn't been in the public eye for almost a decade uh, on a lot of these issues. And so, you know, just the fact that we're talking about it itself is a step forward. Um, and some of these are pretty complex policy questions. So I didn't expect a lot of them would be solved at the summit. So the government has flagged that they're going to do a review um, run by an eminent panel of, of three people that they'll appoint in the next few weeks. That'll look at the broad objectives and structure of the migration program. That presumably will then be used to inform how the migration intake is structured in future years. 
But the government also is, is has committed to progressing work on things like the wage threshold for temporary sponsorship. So, you know, that was the big one that was part of the summit negotiations that clearly they couldn't reach agreement on. So at the moment, if you're a temporary sponsored worker, so you're sponsored by an employer to come to Australia on a temporary basis for either two or four years, you know, you have to be earning at least $53,900. The ACTU wanted that raised to at least 90000 The business groups like Aki were talking more about 60000 There's clearly a need to raise that threshold. It hasn't gone up for close to a decade. So it's been stuck at $53,900 since 2013. Past reviews have recommended it should increase. You know, if, if you just index it to wages growth since 2013, it would probably sit somewhere between 65 and 70000 uh, and we know that people that come here um, as migrants uh, on temporary visas, if they earn lower wages, they are at greater risk of exploitation. So there's good reasons for raising the threshold. Where the ACTU has landed with 90,000, that would knock out two thirds of recent v- TSS visa applicants. So it would knock out a large share of the program, including a lot of younger people that you actually want to be part of the program in the long term. Because your typical temporary skilled migrant is in their 20s and 30s, they're younger than the typical worker. If you set the wage threshold too high, then basically people who with three or four or five years of experience that were like, they might earn 70 grand, which is what Grattan has recommended, they'd struggle to earn 90, you then lose those people. They never come to Australia in the first place and they actually form a pretty large share of our skilled migration program in the long run. So that's certainly one issue that's on the table. Uh, and they're going to have to come to some kind of agreement on that, presumably over the course of the next few months, where there isn't a great deal of agreement between the, the between the different parties. So they'll have to make a call. The other ones that we've looked at is they've committed to reviewing the occupation list. Now, we've, if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard us talk extensively about the fact that those occupation lists don't work very well. We don't have the data to work out what jobs should be on those occupation lists. It's very hard to define what a shortage is. It's particularly hard and in frankly doesn't make a lot of sense to select permanent migrants who are going to be here for 40 years on the basis of uh, whether they're filling or not filling a skill shortage in the first two years that they're in Australia. So what we should be doing is instead ditching the occupation lists, instead just targeting high-wage, high-skill jobs, at least 70000 for temporary sponsorship, at least 85000 for permanent sponsorship, and that would be a much better way forward. But the, the big challenge, if I can I can finish up, Kat, is the government, Anthony Albanese is the Prime Minister, has made clear that he, he wants to see more permanent migration and he's not a huge fan of the reliance upon temporary migration in Australia. One of the challenges that we're going to have with this review is, and it'll be a question that they'll have to grapple with, is, you know, there's there's you can't have an uncapped temporary program, which is what we have. Lots of people come to Australia as students, working holiday makers, temporary sponsored workers. And then a capped permanent program, even if it's gone up from 160 to 195,000 for this year, and then have a pathway to permanent residency, you know, for, for most, if not all people. You know, something's got to give in that world. Um, particularly in a world now where there are some pushing for lower wage you know, lower wage occupations like personal care attendants and aged care to be added to the skills list or to be uh, added to the program, they're particularly challenging if you're then going to offer permanent residence to that person. They're not going to be near the front of the queue if you're thinking about who you'd otherwise want to offer permanent residency to. So there's some big challenges down the road for the migration program that they'll have to deal with through the review and through these other forums as well. So, Brendan, there was action about the pension and allowing pensioners to work more. Could you take us through that recommendation? 
So basically, at a time when we've got unemployment at 3.4%, um, you know, businesses are crying out for workers. One of the things the government has done is they've um, expanded the amount of income that you can earn from working before you start to lose any access to your age pension or the age pension income test. So the pension is means tested, which means that the more that you earn, then the less pension you get. In the same way, the more that you own asset-wise, then the less pension you get as well. And so what the government has done is for this financial year, they've extended a $4,000 uh, credit, so you can earn an extra four thousand dollars before you see any of the income from the pension uh, clawed back. So that's obviously an extra incentive for pensioners to remain in work. Australia's rate of old age workforce participation, while it's increased in recent years, it remains lower than a lot of other countries. And so the suggestion or the the, the argument here is that by giving pensioners greater incentives to work, more will stay in the workforce, and also potentially because so few work in the first place, you won't be giving up. Um, all that much additional um, age pension payments to those that are working already who, who will benefit from the change. It is only for this financial year, um, which is basically because of the budgetary cost of the measure. So if you did this long term, potentially it has a, a relatively sizable impact on the in the budget at a time when we've got you know, a trillion dollars of debt, a structural deficit of 2% of GDP. So it's something that national seniors, um, the federal coalition, the opposition under Peter Dutton has been pushing for. They've done it for this year. It'll be an open question whether it stays in future years. Historically, once this kind of policy is put in place, they do tend to be extended. Like you can just imagine the debates we're going to have about the fuel excise rebate cuts that's supposed to run out in, in uh, later in this month. But if you were to do this, you'd also want to pair it with other things that sort of take away some of those very generous giveaways to older Australians. So the other way in which you can raise um, old age workforce participation is the retirement age. Now, we don't think you should necessarily do anything on the age pension age, which is 67, but the age in which you can access your superannuation is 60. The Productivity Commission has suggested previously it should go to around 65. That would have a huge budgetary boost in the long run. I think it's about $7 billion a year as far out as 2055. And it would potentially get a lot of people back into the workforce because they would you know, not be able to rely upon tax-free superannuation so early on. So you know, if we're going to have a debate about old age workforce participation, we should. Um, you know, I think we need to look at both the carrots, but we also need to look at you know, the other side of the, the coin, which is the sticks, things that we probably should... Um, for their own reasons, have have rolled back anyway that would also boost participation amongst that group. So just a final question for both of you. I mean, are there any areas you want to see more action taken? Are there any places you feel are missed opportunities? Brendan, I might start with you. The migration got a lot of focus this time around and deservedly so. It's probably the policy lever for which we spend the least time thinking about relative to the size of the impacts it can have. I think the, the area the government will have to move out of the summit, particularly if they expand the permanent program permanently, uh, is on housing. So, you know, more people adds to housing demand. If you don't build enough homes, then the pressure is on rents. Um, Low-income renters um, are hurt the most. It's something that there hasn't been a lot of activity um, or a lot of action out of the summit on that yet. Uh, the government is flagging they're going to look at trying to get super funds into housing. It's not clear how that's going to work or how effective that's going to be. The impediments there are all about the fact that institutions don't own housing in Australia because state land taxes basically make it uneconomic because they're target taxed at a progressive rate on the total land holding. So someone owns 100 homes, pays far more, far more land tax than if 100 individuals own each of those 100 homes. So that's probably an area I think we'd like to see more action. It's kind of orthogonal to the questions of the summit, but it's going to be something they're going to have to tackle, particularly if they look at a higher migration intake in the long run. 
And Danny, was there anything you'd like to see action on? Uh, Look, I've already mentioned paid parental leave. That is a big one for me. Um, Look, the other thing that I think came through loud and clear at the summit that wasn't really represented in the outcomes document uh, was the importance of boosting job seeker payments, uh, as well as having a look at um, some of the very burdensome requirements to, to access those payments. So I think there there was some very powerful interventions about the way in which um, the, the the low rate of, of job seeker is now a barrier to, to job search and, and the way we're trapping people in, in a world of financial and mental stress. Related to that, there was also, I think, some really important discussion about the need to, to change the job network system, which is the, the system that um, tries to get unemployed, unemployed people back into work. Uh, it has been expensive. It has been ineffective at getting long-term unemployed back into the workforce. Uh, and Travis McLeod from the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, I think, had some some really um, powerful things to say about that as well as some suggestions of how to move forward. Beyond those things, though, I think, um, and it, it wasn't really, to be fair, you know, front and centre of the summit, but, you know, the government will need to be building a productivity agenda if we want to create long-term sustainable wage rises we need to boost productivity so we do have to look at the way we deliver critical services like health and education Um, we do need to provide more investment certainty through much clearer climate policy better digital policy Uh, and we need to look at ways to try and um, boost dynamism in the economy so uh, fixing planning laws Brendan spent a lot of time thinking about um, you know the, the skilled migration rules that Brendan was talking about then uh, making sure competition laws working effectively, and the Productivity Commission at the moment is looking at these opportunities through its five yearly productivity review. Uh, and I think it's really important that that doesn't just get sort of shoved onto the the shelf again. Um, you know, this is a really important long term policy conversation for this country. Thank you so much, Danny and Brendan. I really loved hearing your speech at the Jobs and Skills Summit. And if you would like to read the text of that speech, um, it's available for free on our website, on the homepage and on our news page at ratton.edu.au. If you'd like to talk to us more about this podcast or any other issues, find us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and all other social media at Grattan Institute. As always, please take care and thanks so much for listening.